Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the About to Interview podcast. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. About to Interview focuses on the conversations I have with writers, directors, actors, and other creators, and is a supplemental version of the weekly film review podcast About to Review, which has a goal of amplifying diverse voices in media. You can subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It is on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you can find. Make sure to follow the podcast on social media, at About Review on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and also youtube.com slash review. If you go to aboutreview.com, it has full links to the show notes and guests, as well as a support tab if you want to help out the studio. Now, on today's episode, I was able to talk with the some of the creative team behind a locally shot film called Prospect. Now, I talked to Zeke Earl and Chris Caldwell, who are the directors, and Bryce Budke, who is the producer. You can order their film, Prospect, right now on prospectthefilm.com. This was a great conversation I had with the guys when they came down to the recording studio, so definitely thank you to all of them for making the time to do that. Before we get into that interview, we will get into the original theme song created by Damien Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Sitting down with the directors, Chris Caldwell and Zeke Earl, and the producer, Bryce Budke of the film Prospect. Welcome to the studio, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. So your film Prospect is hitting VOD and physical media uh, soon, as in like when this episode comes out, it will come out in like two days from now. But before we get into Prospect, the feature film, I want to talk about Shep Films. So kind of where this company started and the projects you guys were doing that kind of led you into experimental sci-fi. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, Shep Films uh, was a company that Chris and I pretty much started immediately out of college. And uh, it really only exists because we graduated during the middle of the recession. Uh, both Chris and I were trying to get jobs and internships, I think primarily in like advertising, really just kind of anything that was creative that would pay money. And there was just kind of no opportunity. So we started a little fledgling production company, uh, from scratch. Um, and it, it grew and it, uh, took off. I think the, uh, um, you know, very early from the beginning of its inception was, you know, it was a part of this question of how to find ways to be financially sustainable and work in the creative industry. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the advantages of starting your own production company is uh, you're essentially creating a, a, a toolbox to pursue any sort of project that you want. And so early on, it very much became a platform for us to, you know, on, on the one hand, um, hone our production skills to to learn more. It was, I mean, Zeke and I, not, not Either of us went to film school and in a lot of ways the early days of Shep Films was like our film school um, and uh, it became uh, a means to use uh, commercial work to as also support our narrative aspirations so it was in those early days of Shep Films where we were shooting commercials we were buying camera gear we were creating an apparatus that could go out and shoot stuff and so that's how we made our first couple short films could hustle and work for Microsoft for three months and then take a few months off and go go do our own thing now, when we talk about this this apparatus, you know, that you <laughs> created, was that when you started doing more of like the outdoor filmmaking, or is this something that you guys were still using for the commercial side of things? I mean, a lot of it was by virtue of like being, I guess, all in one full service production. I mean, we had we we owned our own cameras. This was kind of like a big part of what made this possible was, um, you know, the kind of uh, advances that were happening in DSLR cameras at the time and the ability to just, you know, capture 
uh, high quality images for lower and lower prices. And so it meant that our overhead head could stay low and that we could uh, just do a lot more ourselves. For the first year or so, year or two, it was just Zeke and I doing everything and, you know, carrying all the gear around. And like, uh, it was the two of us in production, the two of us in post. Um, and so, you know, that, that essentially was the apparatus, the editing bays, the cameras, like all that stuff, as well as the experience garnered and the connections with, um, crew who became friends and eager to kind of like join us in our narrative aspirations as well. Well, especially when it is just two people and you have cameras and sound equipment, it's nice to bring people in, not just for a creative, you know, kind of collective, but also to like, Hey, this stuff is really heavy guys. And it is just two of us carrying it around (laughs) everywhere. Can we just get some help? <laughs> so, and then Bryce, when did you kind of first get involved with this yeah, project? Yeah, I knew I knew Zeke and Chris from college as well. I was one of the lucky few who graduated in the recession to a job. Wow, uh, I know. What was that like? I, I was uncomfortable when talking to my friends. Right. Um, Bryce bought a car, and we were all like, "Whoa, <laughs> whatever, dude." <laughs> so I uh, I got a job doing business consulting. I was economics major, and that led me into Microsoft uh, as well. Uh, and it basically from there, I was learning budgets and schedules and project management, which was helpful. I, Zeke and Chris found it helpful and brought me <laughs> in to do uh, Prospect the Short. And so I knew I was involved with a bunch of uh, the work they were doing in college and even the first couple of years, but just as a friend helping out. Um, and then, yeah, they brought me in to do Prospect. And that was my my film school, my way to learn it. And it conveniently was very similar to all the stuff I was doing for work. It had different names, different, mm. you know, things that they called them different things, but otherwise was was kind of a one-to-one. And that got me in there. I ended up being in a marketing group in Microsoft and was able to hire Shep to do some commercials there. And then I learned that I liked to do that better than my actual job and quit and joined the company a couple years after that. Yeah, what's, five years in. what's really great is the more we've we've learned about like Hollywood, like the traditional way of making movies, mm-hmm. Hollywood is really low tech. And yeah. uh, the software and kind of the, you know, a lot of the stuff you find these companies using is seemingly a little behind where you have Bryce here who's coming from like an actual tech company. <laughs> and uh, that little company, local company called Microsoft, <laughs> to some of my listeners who are just wondering, yeah. you know. And, and in a lot of ways, like like doing things that are like more efficient and more sophisticated than like what what we were seeing like uh, from from down south. Um, so even just like doing prospect, um, I think Bryce was kind of like a little bit ahead of the industry, uh, and was always kind of impressing these like kind of wizened Hollywood producers. It was pretty funny. Nice. That definitely helps uh, when you have some industry knowledge, even if it is from an outside industry yeah. that then kind of can blend into your creative pursuit yeah i think in the same way of zeke and chris having to teach themselves a lot of ways through film school and that impress people of their knowledge despite how new into the industry they were felt a similar way for me on the producing side of i was able to gain a lot of credibility because even though i hadn't done the specific act of making a film or making a feature film i could show that i had all those skills just because i've done you know i was running a very large marketing team in microsoft which was very similar which again has what some people in the indie filmmaking struggle with which is called a budget (laughs) um they they have operating capital (laughs) that a lot of indie just creatives you know we always just bootstrap things we kind of just piece things together as we as we can versus Mm -hmm. yeah coming from a background where you have kind of access to anything that you would need yeah it was a no i think it's helpful to see what you can do with a large budget and then also be able to take that and be like what do you really need in order to pull it off because you know there's a lot of things that you you don't that are nice to have right i mean i mean similar of the first years they didn't need anyone to haul gear but as soon as we had the budgets to haul gear it's like (laughs) please like i'm we just did a shoot the other day where it was just four of us again and (laughs) i had to haul a lot of gear through a lot of airports and i was like man this is where are those pas when you need them you just start looking around (laughs) exactly well, and I think the, you know, financial, logistical kind of business perspective on independent filmmaking is something that's uh, easy to overlook, especially in early stages and especially when you don't really have the wherewithal to really tackle that. It's something that's difficult. And so, you know, I'd say, uh, you know, bringing Bryce into the fold and, uh, you know, leveling up on that arena of the skill set is one of the things that I would attribute to 
the quote unquote success of prospect in terms of like getting a movie made is, you know, a big part of our pitch. It involved a lot of weird, uh, unconventional things. But one of the things we really did was thorough budgeting and pre-production through every phase of script development and that we were always presenting a very thoughtful logistical and budgetary plan along with our script and our concept art and all those materials. So it became a, a, a big part of the package in terms of getting that feature made, especially a first feature, you know, you have nothing to stand on. And so, you know, we were palpably aware that we had to overcompensate to demonstrate our, that, that this was even uh, something worth considering for these uh, stakeholders. That was like, especially going from, you know, those first kind of commercial advertising videos leading into Prospect. One of the things that I noticed that stayed true from some of the early stuff to then is this love of creature design. And so with the old Seahawks commercial, you know, that you guys did with the banana slug, mm -hmm. among other things, you know, and then you did some Bud Light with, you know, some cans. So kind of where did that creature design interest first come from? And kind of how did it then manifest into the world of Prospect and the Taka Corporation? Where did it come from? <laughs> Was it that He-Man cartoon? Childhood? <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, like a lot of uh, our, our first short film that Chris and I did together was called uh, In the Pines, mm -hmm. and we did it for, um, you know, a budget of like a thousand bucks. Maybe it was a little wow. more than that. And uh, but we had all this kind of like basic equipment from our commercial production company, and uh, some friends were willing to do a few favors. And uh, but we we didn't want to do something that just felt like a really, really small, like no budget little indie drama. Um, so I kind of came up with this idea of of incorporating uh, macro photography uh, of insects. Mm -hmm. So the basic premise is it's about a girl who wants to get abducted by aliens and she's on this hike and we kind of included this uh, macro photography to create this very alien feel before you really know what what she's doing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely love that. When you get a camera that close to a bug, it turns into something totally kind of foreign uh, and otherworldly. Um, and I think we've just always been drawn to, to, to the fantastical, to the otherworldly, but keeping it in a very grounded sense. We, we love making that stuff feel uh, organic and uh, a texture that blends with the familiar world as opposed to kind of pops out. Um, so yeah, I think that's that kind of runs through stuff we've been doing for years and, and definitely culminated in Prospect. Yeah, I think there's definitely uh, a proclivity toward texture um, in a lot of ways. And, 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 and for us, what that means is, you know, rendering things as practically as possible. And you even look at something as goofy as like that Seahawks piece, which is very much a, you know, I wouldn't even call it a parody. It's like an homage to mm -hmm. kind of the, the 60s, 70s Japanese kaiju costumed monster kind of goofiness. Um, but it was, you know, wanting to kind of apply kind of that very handmade kind of texture to um, a spot with the Seahawks, which was just endlessly amusing. Um, and for Prospect, it was, you know, that, that same core philosophy where we wanted to render uh, an original sci-fi universe um, in as, as much detail as we possibly could, but, but to do it practically and to give it that texture. And I think a lot of it goes back to childhood and the, the, the types of movies that, that, that we grew up on. And, uh, you know, the sci-fi films of the 70s and 80s um, were a lot more production design heavy. And, uh, you know, that feeling that, that, that we're kind of, I guess, always chasing is that feeling that, that you can reach out and touch it and bring that level of immersion and palpability to a completely imagined world. And that was something that, you know, with the first two short films you guys did with The Garage and In the Pines, mm -hmm. It definitely has a very organic feel, you know, to it, to the whole production and then to the finished product. Now, how much of that has to do with filming in nature versus a lot of kind of the commercial work that you guys do or have done, you know, where it is a bit more stationary versus being outside and being in that organic atmosphere? Kind of how does that influence the filmmaking itself? Yeah, I mean, as far as filming in nature... Part of it is, you know, not having any money. 
<laughs> right. Um, it's free production design. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you got a cool location to work with. Um, and here know, in the Northwest, we have a we have a few really a cool lot, places absolutely. to shoot. We've got a lot <laughs> oh, to work yeah. with. Um, but the other part of it is I've always idolized, you know, movies like uh, Aguirre, The Wrath of God, and Fitzcarraldo. You know, these these Herzog epics where he goes to the rainforest mm-hmm. and like creates, um, <laughs> you know, like somewhat realistic circumstances for for his stories. Uh, I think early on. Um, New World was a very influential movie and like where Terrence Malick creates, you know, sets that are um, 360 degrees, you know, usable. He just actually creates real locations and builds them around natural light. And that's uh, a lot of what we did in Prospect in a lot of ways. And again, it's getting the idea where, you know, if you build something on a soundstage and design and, you know, paint it, I mean, yeah, you can get it to look really good, but there's a certain like kind of the, the chaos of nature, the chaos of natural light that makes something feel real. And I think that's what I'm always chasing after. And I think uh, particularly in the beginning, there is this awareness that being in the Northwest, being in Seattle, we were sitting on a lot of, uh, you know, unexploited, amazing locations. And so wanting to, to take advantage of that. I mean, the, 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 the very real starting point for the conception of Prospect was the location. It was the Ho Rainforest. It was spending time in college, you know, hiking and, and camping out there. And always, you know, it, it created this desire to turn it into an alien world. Um, and I even remember, like, when we first started, you know, interacting with the more established industry in Los Angeles, and uh, there was a lot of excitement around the uniqueness of our location. Shooting in the Ho mm-hmm. Rainforest was something that, you know, in Hollywood people hadn't really seen before and there was definitely this excitement and like even just like navigating with our first short film first couple short films um you know do we make the move out here and there was there was some some adamant uh insistence like no stay up there keep shooting up there because you guys are doing something that is very different this isn't you know another sci-fi short shot in joshua tree it's you know it's got right. it's got some uh character to it because as, as, yeah as unique as a place that joshua tree is i mean it is the only place where those certain you know, flora and fauna grow, there is nothing like the Olympic Peninsula. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing like, and I talked about it before, where from Seattle, you can drive two hours and be in almost every temperate zone. Mm-hmm. You can be in the snow, you can be in a rainforest, you can be in the desert of central Washington. That is something that a lot of places just do not have. So it definitely, yeah, adds a unique element to the idea of filmmaking being like, okay, when it comes to location scouting, <laughs> We can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to Prospect, so after you know the commercial side of things, you do the two short films with Prospect, and you did a Kickstarter in 2012. When did that kind of start to culminate? And from the beginning, was it making sure to have the Kickstarter and have that community support? Or was that part of the process that kind of came later as you're developing the ideas for Prospect? Yeah, I mean, so our first, first short films in the Pines, we we did on our own, we self-funded, um, and uh, we we actually never intended on turning in the Pines into a feature film. Uh, and once we released it online, there was actually some interest from Hollywood in hmm. in doing that, and uh, we tried. We wrote, uh, I think, a couple different screenplays, or at least started, and nothing ever felt quite right. You know, it was something that we were trying to kind of make. We were trying to force it. Um, so with Prospect, it was always intended on being a, a feature film, um, and we wanted to have uh, some practical uh, production design, intricate costumes, uh, and that costs money. So, I mean, for us, Kickstarter was a way to raise money, you know, more so than anything else, and it was almost kind of a surprise to us, the the community that formed through Kickstarter as well. We, we met a lot of our crew, um, and... and future collaborators by doing that Kickstarter, uh, which, which was awesome. And then Bryce, did that kind of, was that, did that feel like it was more in your wheelhouse when it came to the Kickstarter thing or as far as raising the funds or that model coming from more of the corporate side of things versus the kind of indie filmmaker side? Yeah. I have to give a lot of credit to Zeke and Chris that they, they have a good head around, budget and just the business side of things so it felt like i was very much coming in to amplify what they were already thinking um the nice what was helpful coming from the corporate side is that i had 
done it numerous times. And so as we were throwing out ideas, I'd be like, well, that could work. That couldn't work. This is a good way to structure things. But as we got into it, it felt very collaborative. Um, obviously, I was the one putting the like numbers on the paper to figure out how much we needed to raise. But as we got in, it was it was a full-time job for the full four weeks for all of us. It was, it, I think in looking back, we realized we probably could have just taken another commercial project or two, taken the profits and just done it right. with how much time we spent on it. But with the we looking back, we never would have done that because the we got so much more value out of just all the people that were so excited about it, both on the press side, on the crew side, and having a fan base built up. So that was that was huge, and I think that was one that none of us thought about going in. But as we looked back, it probably should have been obvious. Yeah, that was that was probably our biggest uh, insight after the experience of running that Kickstarter campaign was that the community yield was a lot more um, valuable, it seemed, than than any sort of financial yield. Um, and it sort of just created a nice uh, starting point. I mean, we did, we did invest a lot of time into pushing like the Kickstarter campaign. I think a point of pride for us was the amount of donors um, rather than like a few big, you know, endowments, um, which, which is often the case with uh, film Kickstarters. Um, that we we had a pretty a fairly low average uh, bidding and so that meant you were reaching more people and it kind of you started to do the first pass of building an audience and so we we benefited from that where we had relationships with press via the Kickstarter campaign so when the film was finally released online we could follow up there and do do a big push and then uh, you know eventually down the road that's that's all contributing toward the the end goal of getting the feature film made yeah because you guys I mean the initial goal is like 18,000 mm-hmm. and you guys eclipsed that. Yeah. You know, and it was around like 23 20, somewhere in there. I think 22 ish. Yeah. Which is definitely impressive. Cause I yeah. remember hearing rumbles of this, you know, kind of years ago mm-hmm. and definitely you don't, you talked about the different levels in a lot of Kickstarter projects, you know, they will only have certain amount of levels of those smaller ones. When it was like, those are the ones that you want the most exposure. Those are the ones that are having that buy-in into your creative process versus having 15 of a $2,500 level. Mm-hmm. That is not most people who are you know, looking at this type of thing. So it's definitely a smart move when creating that, that structure of building the community first, creating the piece. And then when you release it, that fan base, that community base is already there. Mm-hmm. I think it also taught us a lot as we were going to marketing prospect that, the way you're going to get people to pay attention to your film or anything out there is that you have to do something that's interesting outside of just the film. So for the Kickstarter, we released a lot of content that was interesting on its own. Mm-hmm. So there were posters, there were behind the scenes vignettes. What else do I, we wrote articles, uh, at least in the pines online as yeah. part of the Kickstarter campaign. Mm. Um, and so just Zeke's cat featured in some of those videos. You're correct. So uh, <laughs> it's just in the idea that we, we didn't just assume that the Kickstarter alone or now for prospect alone is enough necessarily to drive an article or drive people to care that there has to be something else you're giving that is interesting and worth consuming. Um, just, it's, it's such a, it's such a just full landscape as far as media and consumption. Well, I mean, a lot of that is driven just by the fact that like not a lot of, uh, media outlets are, are have they have like a lot of media outlets have explicit policies against promoting promoting Kickstarters because then you know they just open the floodgates to um, mm, you know anybody and so uh, you know I think more almost... so um, they're not successful. Yeah. Kickstarter has kind of a bad reputation. I think I mean part of this conversation is we did this Kickstarter in 2014. Mm-hmm. I think. Before... On... 2012, and then yeah. it premiered at oh, South we, no, by that's in right. the, 2014. Yeah, 2014. <laughs> I do my research. <laughs> yeah, it's been so long. I think it would be a lot harder to do yeah. what we what we did then now. Yeah, I, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, I mean, it speaks to the kind of the inundation of both good things and amazing creative projects, but also Kickstarter is just one of those just social funding platforms where it is like, I need $500 to get this chair I want. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but yeah. The, well, and even with making a short film, I mean, at least for me personally, there was a, an awareness and sort of a self-consciousness about the fact that, you know, we're asking money yeah. so that we can make our little movie. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think some of that that insecurity, if you want to call it, uh, drove kind of the, 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 the desire to create more value out of like the campaign where it's like if, if you're going to convince someone to give you their money, you know, you got to show some value for that. It's not just right. please help me. <laughs> please help me make my art which all of us need that help yeah. but yeah it's different when you're building a community and not just 
getting money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then once you guys, you know, premiere to South by Southwest, you know, you have this short. One of the differences and similarities between the short and the feature is in the short, uh, the daughter, she was not given a name, at least in the credits, mm-hmm. uh, whether that was intentional or, or not, but her name is daughter. <laughs> and then in the feature, her name is C. She has this interest in art. So in the short, she is actually drawing, you know, and her and her dad have this conversation about her, her art. In the feature, she is writing. You know, she was writing out this story that she remembers and adding elements here and there. So what was important about her focus on art? Um, I mean, I think it, it gravitated towards artistic expression just because, um, I mean, I think one of the, the you know, the angles uh, for the film, particularly as a science fiction film, was that it was very much tied to the perspective of this teenage girl. Um, and wanting to, you know, be expressive of the, you know, all the elements of that that type of existence. And so a lot of this was driven by, you know, thinking about um, a, a teenager who is, uh, you know, attached to uh, her father um, and going through long stretches of extreme isolation with just the two of them. And so um, in both in both accounts, I think on a on a on a primary level it's it's you know an expression of that you know you have to find ways to keep your mind active and then on top of that going through a lot of uh the the development the coming of age around that time you know you're trying to to kind of figure out your identity and 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 that kind of thing in the short film it manifests in the form of um she would be doing sketches and Mm -hmm. stuff and i think a lot of that was driven by showing that she has kind of uh, a younger perspective, a fascination with this world that um, con- in contrast to the perspective of the father where, you know, he sees the environment as, you know, one resources to be exploited and also just a threat to um, their own existence, but to, to bring that kind of fascination into it. And then for the feature film, she's... Um, she she's she lost her copy of her favorite novel and she is kind of trying to recreate a manuscript from memory and um you know adding kind of a, a an element that that spoke to the the social um elements of her life that she's she's uh, missing um in this existence and um just acknowledge that kind of hunger for more that was definitely an interesting thread you know, between, between the two. And then in the book, you know, that she is kind of the manuscript that rather she is writing from memory from this book that she loved. She's writing in obviously a unique language Mm -hmm. because we never really, you know, in this future world, we hear them speaking English, you know, but she is writing in something different with different characters so I definitely want to hear about where that inspiration for that other language came from, where the ideas came from, and kind of who designed it. Mm-hmm. I think it's like the, what, the third shot in the movie? Um, at least it's, it's right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that was really important because we wanted to tell our audience that this is not on Earth or Earth adjacent. Mm-hmm. You yeah. are somewhere else. And we don't uh, really get more explicit than that. Um, you know, this, this film, uh, doesn't have a lot of exposition. Um, it really forces people to sort of figure a lot out with, with the context clues. And that was the big one, the first one. Um, we designed three different alphabets for the film. Wow. And they all had kind of a different origin and context. There was a, a simplified alphabet we called the machine alphabet. And it's the one you see on uh, anything kind of manufactured. So mm-hmm. like the uh, drop pod control panels right. and like on, you know, gear that's like hanging on suits. Uh, and then we had the kind of very decorative uh, formal alphabet, which is primarily used in advertisements. Um, so when you see candy wrappers or magazine mm. covers or religious icons, it's a much more flashy decorative element. And then the written alphabet is a kind of quick simplification of the formal alphabet. And um, a lot of people, a lot of people worked. I think you know we actually had different contributors at every stage of that process. Um, 
and I think what's so cool is to to nail that scene, that very first shot where you see the actress uh, Sophie writing the alphabet. Mm-hmm. She practiced that for weeks. Um, and she does it like fluidly and seamlessly. And it's one of these details that, of course, you don't like really think about. It. It's just mm-hmm. someone writing. But she had to essentially learn how to write a completely new language just for that one shot. That is awesome. And it sounds very similar to how in Japanese you have katakana, hiragana, kanji. You have multiple ways of writing out what you need to say. So that is fascinating that for this film you created three unique alphabets. Question, though, does anybody actually... Uh, is anybody fluent in writing or reading this alphabet or any of the three? No. no <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, one of the other aspects, you know, speaking of the the art, you know, of this world, both in the, you know, written art, the music almost plays a character in and of itself. And it has this kind of ethereal quality at times, but also it's very intense, you know, dramatic score. So with the, with the music... How much of that from short film to feature did you guys really want to bridge that gap and make it, you know, bigger and bolder for the feature? Um, yeah, I mean, that it was it was it was very much kind of a similar trajectory to what you just described in terms of like we had a lot of conversations. The composer um, is my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've, I was we've, not going to assume I saw the last name, but yeah. I was like, you know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we have, you know, a fairly close working relationship and he's, he's done a lot of stuff for us, both in commercials and narrative. And he, he scored the short film as well. And, um, one of the advantages to that was that we were able to have conversations with him developing the score conceptually, um, even in pre-production. So he would come into, you know, our warehouse where we were building like all the props and sets and stuff and be able to see everything and start, you know, generating ideas and that kind of thing. And one of the places we landed was um, with the short film, the score has this kind of uh, retro, a little a little bit more on the nose in terms of like the genre inspirations. There's kind of like these analog synth noises that are, are paired with kind of a picking guitar. And it was it was very much that fusion of, of science fiction and Western that, mm-hmm. that we were going for. And for the feature, um, we wanted something that stood more on its own and was distinctive on its own. And the uh, approach that we ended up gravitating toward was um, giving it, um, think of it almost as uh, a period piece. Um, This was one of the kind of principles that guided a lot of the aesthetic decisions, not just in the music. Um, So the score uses some some unique instruments, some some more medieval instruments. Um, It's got, there's a hurdy-gurdy in there and a psaltery, which are these old kind of crank based like stringed instruments that mm-hmm. create these really unique droning sounds. One of the lead voices is a cornetto, which kind of has a different sort of tenor to it. Um, it's, it feels kind of partway between like a trumpet and a saxophone, but, but, but using the texture of these kind of older instruments to kind of imbue it with that, that, that sense of history, which is what we were really going for with the flavor of this whole world. This is a very analog vision of the future technology with switches and knobs and cranks. And for me, being a huge sci-fi fan, I love leaning into that. Because as much as I love Star Trek and Star Wars with holograms and everything, there's something about having physical things, you know, that your actors in this case can manipulate. They can switch on. There are toggles. So when you were developing this, yeah, talk about kind of that drive towards an analog future. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is that prospect is not futurism. It's not, you know, interstellar or the Mm -hmm. Martian or someone sitting down and saying, this is potentially what a future could look like. Uh, I mean, I think if, if pressed, I would say prospect takes place a billion years in the future after there's been numerous technological climbs and collapses Mm -hmm. and, but more, more so we, we wanted to create an environment that put the technology sort of into the background. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can make an argument that even Prospect is more of a Western than than science fiction. It's driven more by the decisions of the characters than any of these large conceptual thematic elements like a lot of other uh, sci-fi films. Uh, it's also a film about blue collar people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, even within their own universe, these people don't have the best stuff. Uh, they have, you know, kind of whatever they could pick up at the pawn shop. Um, what they can afford. Their drop pod is probably a shitty rental. It's like a U-Haul. Um, and so, yeah, we we wanted to create a practical, tactile universe that 
put the character's decisions as kind of what's driving the film uh, as a whole. Yeah, I think that using using the production design, I mean, that element of the production design um, uh, on a level is, is is intended to acknowledge the economics of the situation. That that you know, at a at a basic level, these these characters are driven by um, financial need, um, and and for the world to be expressive of that. It it also you know on I guess I guess kind of a more blanket level, like it it's. Um, you know, acknowledging the fact that we, we wanted the world to feel as real as possible. I mean, you're always you're always shooting for immersion, and uh, I think a lot of science fiction falls victim to kind of like a monolithic aesthetic for a lot of things. And so mm. that was another element that played into kind of the the flavor of the production design is that you know every suit has a different design because these people bought what they could afford or what was. Uh, um, you know, tactical for their, their needs. Um, and, and so it's not, you know, it, it's not a bunch of people that are all under the umbrella of the same corporation or, or military organization that, you know, these are freelancers that bought what they could afford at an outfitters. And so the, the design of the world had to, to, to tell us that so that we didn't have to, um, explicitly, um, and then I think another part I kind of similarly in the pursuit of immersion is that a lot of the touchstones that 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 we're fond of are um, a little bit more retro um, in that regard. And even just like as a kid, I was a big NASA nerd. And, and mm. you know, the, t- the touchstones for that that we were really channeling was like, you know, the Apollo missions and like these these times when we've actually been in capsules that are like descending into other places. And so um, something that's 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 always been fascinating about that is how analog that was how ridiculously analog that whole how terrifyingly was. analog exactly yeah. it was yeah i mean i remember uh watching apollo 13 as a kid and that was that was the movie that really hammered into me kind of that fear of space and that just palpable awareness mm. that you're in this like tin can and there's this vacuum out there and so that somebody yeah. wrote some stuff on a chalkboard and they're like yeah i think this is gonna work mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like sorry what yeah it that it is kind of insane and so i mean this this world building that you guys put together it did remind me you know, and again, speaking of a, you know, space western, Firefly and Serenity, you know, where it is. It is this analog vision of the future where, yeah, I'm sure there are some people, you know, in this prospect universe who do have all the nice things. There are a lot of people who do not have that. You have to mm-hmm. literally piece things together. And I remember in one of the videos, you were talking about building fans into the first helmet design because you... You picked up this helmet somewhere, some way, put on the actress, and then it just starts fogging up completely. And you're like, okay, um, how do we fix this? So that kind of, it is interesting to hear that in the world, there are those people doing that. In the real world, you were also being like, how do we functionally make this work? Mm-hmm. How do we modify this to make it work for our purpose? So that alone, I mean, is definitely pretty incredible that you guys had the ideas, not just to, yeah slap a helmet on somebody, but really make it functional for your purpose. With the daughter, you know, which is the one that I was kind of mentioning, who had the helmet that was fogging up in the original version, in the original short, before you guys modified it. So she definitely has to make a lot of hard choices, both in the short film and definitely in the feature. She is thrust into some situations where she has to act on her own. Whether it goes right or not, she is responding to the difficulty of the situation. So from each of you, I want to hear about the most challenging part of the production of the feature film and or the short film and kind of how you overcame that. Um, well, the gosh, the short film was uh, so long ago, but actually, I mean, a lot of the, the challenges were the same, um, except that in the feature film, everything was harder because you had such a larger production apparatus so okay so like you're out in the rainforest and you have actors in spacesuits, <laughs> right um, as you do yes as one does and uh yeah all, all the helmets were fogged up in the short film we bought chinese aerospace helmets so they fogged up in the feature film uh we made our own helmets and they still fogged up there's like <laughs> nearly nothing around getting a helmet to not fog up uh, in the feature film, it was easier to pull the visors off. We made magnetic visors, so you can mm. completely remove them and swap them with a clear one. So we were able to reset uh, faster. Um, I mean, probably one of the most ridiculous things about our, our commitments to the helmets, particularly, uh, is that they reflect 
the mm-hmm. entire environment. So fortunately, we already committed to shooting with natural light. But even if we wanted to try to get lighting gear in there, uh, you would see it in in the visors. Um, and then, of course, the other thing you see is the production crew. Right. So <laughs> particularly when we're in the rainforest, you'd yell camera rolling. And that was the crew's cue to hide in the ferns. So they'd kind of have to hit the ground and you'd yell cut and they would sort of rise like an army of the undead. Um, I love that image of yeah. just, you know, a cast of cr- casting crew of 20, 30 people in the rainforest. Camera rolling, everybody just drops or like hides behind a tree yeah. suddenly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we, we definitely didn't make uh, things easy. We owe a, a lot to the cast, particularly in the feature film. In the short film, we avoided doing a lot of dialogue in the helmets. We kind of kept that to interior locations. Where in the feature film, we just wanted to full on embrace the fact that they're stuck in environmental suits on a green moon. Um, uh, we owe a lot to our, our sound guy, Jason, who designed a special mic system that recorded the audio and both allowed the actors to hear uh, each other simultaneously. But, you know, it was a big adjustment for the cast uh, to perform, you know, in these in these helmets. It's like there's a slight delay hearing like the other person. Um, you know, things are fogging up the more you breathe or if you start exclaiming really loudly, you know, initially you have to get used to like the audio sort of bouncing back at you. And, um, you know, this was a relatively untested thing before we, we jumped in in the rainforest and started doing it. So there were there were simultaneously all these logistical uh, challenges. But I mean, I think we're really proud that the film. Uh, was so committed to this. You know, you see in other sci-fi films that they are constantly coming up with excuses to get out of their helmets and to mm-hmm. get out of their suits, and we didn't. And now we know why, <laughs> and I don't think we'll write a film like this again. Well, there's even yeah. one. I remember it getting made fun of on Mystery Science Theater 3000. I can't remember the film, but it is some black and white, mm-hmm. you know, future film. And they're like, you know, adjust your, you know, helmets. So they put like a little ring around their neck press a button and they're like helmets on literally nothing happened <laughs> there is no element of a helmet on them at all and then miss two three gay guys were like really like okay just go along with it you just pressed a button and somehow you have this invisible helmet around you but you guys i mean recognized the problem and created unique solutions to that so and then chris what are you what was the most kind of challenging aspect well, yeah, it's hard to kind of distill it into one. I think with, with any first feature, you're dealing with things on a scale that you just have never had the chance to deal with before. And so there's just a lot of acclimation that, that is required. Um, on top of that, there was a lot of really unique things particular to our production, I think. Um, you know, it, it kind of falls in the same camp what Z was talking about in the sense that you're out in the middle of the rainforest. And then on top of that, you know, it's it's all everyone is laden with all these bits of plastic and 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 all kinds of stuff i think the quickest adjustment was when we first got out on location sort of wrapping our heads around what the time management challenge of this whole thing was going to be. We were shooting in a lot of the exact same locations, like down to the trees that we were shooting uh, for the short film. Really? Um, Just because they were the best ones. But like our experience shooting the short film was a much more seat of the pants crew of like 12 to 20. um, But there was just a a general like agility that that you could achieve there and, and kind of run and gun and like get still get a lot done despite... Um, the circumstances, and then when you show up with what was it, Bryce? Like 60? 60, 65. Oh. Um, it, it things <laughs> things like just get a lot more complicated and, and slow. And then you know we're doing these long scenes of dialogue with multiple actors that all have you know every time you yell cut, all the visors have to pop off. Never the crew has to pop up from the bushes. Yeah, every single take, like something breaks, so props have to get taken back to get uh, glued back together. And and getting used to the fact that like you know between every take we were dealing with you know. 10 to 20 minute windows of time and, and getting maybe like three or four takes when we wanted, you know, triple, quadruple that. Um, so that was one of the biggest adjustments. And again, uh, you know, all credit goes to the cast that that really saved our ass on that front um, um, in terms of, you know, just busting it out when they needed to. Um, but yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you know, it's yeah, every movie is going to have its its own unique challenges. But I think it's it was, this was our, our one of our first times on that scale contending with all the myriad things that just thwart your expectations. Because, yeah, we went into it with 
you know, a small degree of confidence having shot in this place. Like, oh, we know how to shoot in the rainforest and we know what the challenges are there. Mm -hmm. But, um, which is a unique skill set to have in and of itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, shooting outside in general, regardless of production budget is tough shooting in a rainforest and choosing to go with only natural light. When you have canopies, when you have weird reflections off things or no reflections off things. Yeah. That adds a a unique element. Mm -hmm. So yeah, even if you've done it before. So Bryce, what about you? Oh man, <clears throat> I think I mean a lot of the things that were hardest were just all the things Zeke and Chris talked about of <laughs> just the general logistics. I think the thing that maybe I'll twist the question a bit. The thing that caught me by surprise because mm. uh, I think we knew going in how hard this was going to be. Uh, but I think that caught me by surprise is the uh, the personnel management. I just in all mm. in the short film you're there for a week, right? Even right. on commercial productions, it's a week or two, and there's people we work with for years, but at a week or two at a time. When we had the shop, we hired people for seven months straight. We had probably 15 people on regular, you know, payroll and then people coming in and out. Mm-hmm. Then on the shoot, we had, you know, 65 people Jeez. plus for eight weeks straight. And then post was another smaller crew, but again, nine months or so, eight months. And just the, I think I, I didn't anticipate being people's bosses for over a year, right? And just the idea that you... Like there was a, you know, a lot of responsibility on all three of our shoulders of making sure these people were well cared for on a very like, because that's how I'd want to treat people. But also the other side of like, we need these people to Mm -hmm. keep wanting to work for us and doing really good work for a year in order to get as good of a film as we did, including the cast, including all across the board and just uh, of kind of thrust into this management position of people and having to like not just figure out how to make a film for the first time, but also how to manage 65 people for the first time and with a level of hierarchy and, you know, in, in LA, in other bigger film production cities, you have a a very hierarchical nature, nature of the films, right? right? Like you have your keys and they have their teams. And one of the things that was different about being here is we, developed a lot of that hierarchy ourselves we still had the hierarchy but we weren't necessarily going to a key in every position and just having them higher below in some cases we obviously did uh but it just it gave us a lot of flexibility but with that flexibility also put a lot more responsibility on us so it was it's a great learning experience i i think everyone enjoyed working for us or if they didn't <laughs> haven't heard too much about it I uh mean, just just to almost kind of sum up what you're saying is I, what's a, probably a little unique about prospect is not only were we making a first feature film, but we were kind of like managing a startup at the same yeah. time. Yeah, like sure. our fledgling production well. company was the production company for <laughs> for the film. So it was it was learning a lot of new things on on multiple fronts. Yeah, that for sure. One and again, it was not just putting together the movie, which again, in and of itself, is an enormous feat. But the way that you guys created almost the world and the mythology. You know, and the art, you know, that was seen throughout the movie, the languages that were seen throughout, like, that takes a lot of work, more so than we're just going to do this movie, and it's going to be X, you know, and building this whole Taka Corporation, you know, and all of these little things that, you know, get dropped here and there. It was just kind of, it was fascinating yeah, to watch. I mean, I think that in particular was was also just a factor of the core creative team behind the production design being friends in in large part and being people that um, we were working with years in advance of the green light um, Mm. in in some cases where, um, you know, part of our our approach to pitching this film was to be generating concept art because we didn't think, uh, you know, the script alone really uh, was going to be able to express the specificity of what we were trying to do with this world. Um, and so, you know, when we were pitching to financiers, we had the script, we had our short film, and then we also eventually, inspired by Yodorovsky's Dune, created a big tabletop uh, book of concept art that we would slam onto the tables in these meetings. But that meant we were working with our production designer and a lot of um, people who became kind of the key designers for the the production design shop um, on designs for props, for sets, for, for how these things were going to look um, during the script development phase. And then we were... That also allowed us to have a really cool back and forth between the writing and the design um, in the sense that, you know, we'd be talking and brainstorm, you know, there'd be an idea for a cool prop and then it could be woven more integra- in a more integrated fashion into the script and really take advantage of those kinds of things as opposed to, um, you know, a, a more sequential kind of process where you're just creating kind of the skin for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I'd say, you know, 
the richness and depth of the world was something that that we were always striving for and i think it was made possible by the fact that we it, it was collaborated it was a collaborative process um you know early in the script development phase nice yeah because there were creatures on sweaters with multi-armed caterpillar style creatures there mm-hmm. was tardigrade tardigrade yeah uh Then when you guys did like the artifacts from the multiverse, you know, this art show that you guys put together, you know, you really highlighted all of the people that you just mentioned, Chris, of just the production design and the costuming where it's like, this is the hard work that goes into creating this world that a lot of times people just do not see. They just watch the movie and they're like, oh, that was cool. Being able to walk through this art exhibit that you guys put on and see the pieces up close, whether they broke five times uh during production or not and had to be glued back together just seeing it you know in person with the costuming and everything and again the larger world with the i forget his name the big crab monster king mandia king mandia right you know like and the mythology that he has built around around him so just the, the whole production design like that was just, it was impressive yeah, thanks. Yeah. I think one of the cool things is, you know, we assembled this production design crew completely out of uh, people in Seattle, mm-hmm. and there is not much of a movie prop set industry uh, in this part of the country. So everyone we were hiring uh, came from an adjacent industry. They knew how to make make things, usually things for the real world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and I've I've spoken with people who work for actual production design houses and you know immediately on a product you start asking like well how close is it going to get to the camera and Mm. do i need to bother (laughs) painting the other side and is this just going to be in the background where uh none of our crew knew even to ask those questions (laughs) they just built everything to full detail including like fabric tags on like the inside of suits um so we we felt like we we needed to put this stuff on display because it held up close up i think you know more than most you know hollywood movies I think another just to tag on with what Chris and Zeke there of the there were a lot of things we learned during prospect the feature and prospect the short and you know a lot of things we never want to do again like shooting helmets as much as we did but a lot <laughs> right. of things that were like oh no we th- this is really helpful to how we're making films and so even with our future projects coming up we're in a similar way to prospect starting that collaborative process with the production design team awesome from the get go right and even on my side of working on the like logistics and locations and you know, the there was a lot of, uh, you know, hard parts to trying to shoot in the rainforest with natural light. But it also, once you commit to something, you can then start building the apparatus around it. So you give yourself a way to start making your plan, right? Like once we knew we weren't trucking out gear and lights, it's like, all right, well, it's this type of production needing this type of crew, needing this type of apparatus. And to be able to start that early, uh, both on the, on the creative side and the logistics side, it was, uh, I think, I... I it feels like something we we're going to just keep doing because it was so helpful. Um, yeah. And I, and I should also mention that Chris and I are, you know, developing more projects together, we're working on more projects, but we're also trying to keep this broader group of artists together. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've recently formed, as you mentioned, uh, we're calling it the Taka Collective. Uh, we're primarily on Instagram. That's <laughs> at Taka, T-A-K-A, Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, but where we're going to try to keep developing uh, ideas um, you know, kind of even ahead of doing, you know, movies and TV and, and trying to make uh, artwork that's very much kind of in this otherworldly realm, kind of very much in our style, uh, but kind of utilize these these same people and their abilities, um, you know, even as we're, we're developing other projects. Nice. And then last question. So again, talking about the, the manuscript, you know, that C was, was writing, you know, this book that she remembers that she lost. It was uh, The Streamer Girl, mm-hmm. I believe. And so she loses this book and she's trying to recreate this book. Because again, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of time, a lot of isolation, you know, in these instances. So for each of you, what is a book that you feel like you would want to then write the manuscript for from memory? What is a book that has meant that much to you? (laughs) That is a new question. That is what I pride myself on. (laughs) So think about it for a second. (laughs) I feel like the only book I'd be capable of doing that for is the book that I wrote my uh, undergraduate thesis on, which is Murakami's Hardboiled Wonderland and the End of the World, which actually is something I would, you know, we've discussed heavily, like the practicality of actually doing a film adaptation of something like that. Wow. I, I I, yeah. Unrelated. I was mm-hmm. between two books, Hardboiled Wonderland and the End of the World, or when I was like 
early teens, I read this book, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, like 15 times. Mm -hmm. So that's probably (laughs) the one that's just stuck in my head. But either of those two. Okay. I don't know, man. I'm all about original material. (laughs) (laughs) I would do my own universe. I mean, it's a hard question because the the fact that she is able to is sort of to speak to the fact that she's like been ravenous about this one piece of literature Mm -hmm. because there's such limited access to things. So um, I just write prospect fan fiction. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal's six other adventures. (laughs) Uh, nice. Uh, well, I do have something. Speaking of artifacts from the multiverse, that I that I put together, uh, that I I'm interested or and excited to show you guys. So Bryce, if you want to take that frame from I behind would you, love to. And that's something that I that I put together that I was proud of, based on the artifacts oh, from the awesome. multiverse. Cool, cool. <laughs> that's awesome. So, and there's a place on there for you guys to sign uh, once we are once we are done. Oh, cool. So, just to describe for our listening audience, I'm looking at a framed version of a bunch of stuff from our gallery show, but it's worth pointing out that it includes the Green Moon Manual, mm-hmm. um, which you can find online. How? <laughs> it's, it's in Imgur somewhere. It's up there. But what's what's cool is that um, we 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 created that after we made the film because we realized we were sitting on so many original kind of graphic assets. We created advertisements, religious mm-hmm. icons, um, all these drawings of suits and gear, and so we decided for to, for a promotional item to uh, create a. Essentially, like, really, it's an advertisement. It's like if you're going on the Oregon Trail and you're on the East Coast and it's someone who's trying to sell you a bunch of stuff um, in the form of a how-to guide. So we, we created this uh, eight-page document, which we're, we're super proud of, uh, and you can definitely check out online. Yeah, so I will put a picture of this also online for, for the folks to see. But it was just when I went to the exhibit, again, I was just so impressed, not just with seeing the, the props, you know, that were used. I'm a huge just practical you know, fan of things like that. But then again, to see the artwork that he has created, there's a sticker sheet, you know, on this, in this frame that has, again, creatures and designs, you know, that were either inspirations or that were at some point part of the process that somebody on the production design team was like, I think this would, would fit into the world. So I wanted to, to highlight that because it was really uh, just great to like be in that world. Thanks. Yeah, cool. I think. Thanks, man. Yeah, I think we uh, similar to how we had the commercial production company that really allowed us to take the first steps into the short and the feature. Yeah, we see we see that commercial production something still going forward, uh, but then yeah, this Taka Taka Collective is a way for us to keep doing the type of work we want to do and to keep our you know band of artists together and doing films, but also doing hopefully more stuff in this interactive art world and everything adjacent to that. Again, that's on Instagram, at Taka Collective. <laughs> Which segues directly into, so both individually and, you know, as a as a collective, as a company, where's the best place for people to follow your, your adventures, follow the projects that you are doing, and kind of what is next? Uh, yeah, actually, it's probably the Taka Instagram. That's, <laughs> okay. that's what we're putting the most energy into. Um, Chris and I don't tweet much. <laughs> we we develop things over years. It's not a lot of like constant updates. Uh, but yeah, we're we're developing um, a TV show right now uh, with Amazon that mm-hmm. we hope comes to fruition. Another also, small local company for uh, my listeners. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I might have heard of them. <laughs> and we're working on another feature script. Um, and, you know, we're just kind of finding now that we've had, you know, a, a short film that seem a modicum of success that there's a lot of people interested in working with us. But we also feel to keep, you know, we need to keep as many irons in the fire as possible because there's lots of people excited to develop. But getting that green light is is much harder. So we're, we're just trying to do do a lot of things on all fronts. Excellent. So just at Taka Collective on Instagram for all of the the updates. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of stuff up there, and the, we'll be posting a lot of cool behind the scenes prospect stuff Love and it. and stuff that no one's seen yet on, on that account when with the VOD release. Fantastic, yeah. and yeah, so definitely there will be a link to both the social media handle and where people can pick up the film uh, in the show notes below. So yeah, by the time this episode comes out, the film will be almost accessible. So definitely load that up. Uh, so yeah, so I've been sitting with producer Bryce Budkey and directors Zeke Earl and Chris Caldwell from both the short film 
and the feature-length film <laughs> Prospect. Thank you guys again so much for coming by. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Like I said at the beginning of the show, make sure to follow the podcast on social media at About Treeview on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you go to abouttreeview.com, it has full links to the show notes and guests, as well as a link to prospectthefilm.com. Thank you to Chris Caldwell, Zeke Earl, and Bryce Budkey for taking the time to be on the show. Definitely pick up their film. It was really great. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves.